standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 266 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and yesterday I held a fox. Wow, I need to know more about this immediately. Uh, Where? How? What? Why? It was my nephew, Fox. Oh, uh, right. Oh, it's Jen, a bit disappointing, to be honest. Is disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. It's so cute, though. He was dressed sort of as a fox. He had, like, fox socks on. I was like, does he always have to be wearing fox-related clothing at all times? And my brother was like, yes. And I was like, fair dues, I'd be the same. He is six months old. He was six months old yesterday and the size of a three-month-old baby. But he's doing very well and he's very cute and he is so smiley. It was a delight. And... Yeah, Harper's lovely with him too. So I had a very lovely family day. Uh, I also have a little bit of envy where they're at the age still where you can name them without being told off later. <laughs> Should I not tell people what they're called? I wouldn't put their face on Instagram or anything. No, I'm saying they get funny. Oh, they get mentioned. funny. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who knows if podcasts will exist by the time these guys are like of an age. We'll all have like bionic ears and... Oh, fucking hell, I hope so. I really need one. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and last week I went to meet Mick's new kitten, Mr. Trousers. He's fine with you naming him, by the way. And the journey home was absolutely horrific. I regret nothing. It was a horrible journey home because the M11 was shut, which makes it a nightmare. Poor Hannah. But you did pretend to eat him like he was a little sweet corn. And that's surely worth it. I did. I did rub him into my face. (laughs) And that's what got me through when I was diverted through a town that already had diversions. And then hit a road that was closed for flooding. Yeah. Yeah. Did you shout Inception at some point when you're like, what? What signs am I, am I following? I did eventually do a thing that my dad advised me to do in these situations and it is really helpful, which is if you see a sign to a place you do know the way home from, just drive there. Just yeah. drive there and then drive back from there. It might take you longer, but at least you'll feel like you're actually getting somewhere. Well done, Christopher Dunleavy, for that excellent life advice. Yeah. I'm Jen Offord and no, Matt Hancock, you are not Kenoff. Have Has you seen this? the t-shirt? Oh man, there's a video of him doing the rounds today where he's like, he's on a beach and he's wearing like a white linen shirt, beige shorts and he looks like the man from fucking Del Monte and he's walking <laughs> along the beach lip syncing to the uh, the Ken song from Barbie and it says, I am Ken off on it and you're just like, you're definitely not. Does You're PR? absolutely not. Who does Hatman PR? I mean, more on this in the Bush Telegraph in a minute, but why won't they just fuck off? <laughs> Go on. It's an evergreen question, uh, too evergreen. Coming up, American comedian Janine Haruni talks Edinburgh, voting for Donald Trump and delicious flatbreads. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to director Georgina Camilleri about her new boxing documentary, Right to Fight. And in Rated or Dated, spoiler alert, I'm disappointed by the moustaches. But how will the rest of 1988 Young Guns stand up? But first, zero shame, xenophobia and Zlatan. Sorry, I mean Zachira. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where it was a close call, but Jen is not. (laughs) I repeat, not counting her winnings. For the listener. As discussed on last week's podcast, I did put a cheeky little £5 bet on Nigeria to beat the Lionesses today, and it did look like that was going to happen, but it didn't. We won on penalties. Also, 
as it transpired, I actually put the wrong bet on, <laughs> so I wouldn't have won anything anyway. I went, I was in there like to see, oh, what am I going to get then if, you know, they beat us? Because obviously we went a player down. Oh. Lauren James. <sighs> Seriously, I, I didn't see it, but I said to Gary, I was like, did she actually stamp on something? And he went, uh-huh. And I'm like, why? No, women. Come on, no, no. No. It was unequivocal. Like, she definitely did it and she definitely did it on purpose. But, you know, she's 21. She's got a lot no, to learn. No, you don't get to stamp it's... on anyone, Jen. I'm glad. I mean, obviously, she's an incredible <sighs> player and it is sad for the team. But that is the punishment. And, like, you, do, you don't get to stamp on anyone in any situation. It was the right decision. She should have been sent off for that. What I'm trying to say is she's going to have to learn how to uh, keep her temper a bit better. And she is going to learn, unfortunately, in... A hideous way now mm. so i actually feel kind of sorry for her yeah well mm, i'm not at that stage yet no i don't i don't know any situation where i think i'm gonna stump on this person well me either but <laughs> it's i'm also not an elite football player so you know i don't i'm not sure i fully understand the uh the tensions that arise within a game out of frustration like i said she's got some lessons to learn she'll learn them she'll learn them or or, or not i guess <laughs> <laughs> or not, and then she's probably not going to keep getting called up to the Can England I put squad. A bet on so, this? will I win some uh, lovely spondili for this? <laughs> Only if you bet that the result will happen in ninety minutes. If you don't specify uh... that, then uh, apparently there's there's no winnings for you. So, as we got to the penalty shootout, I was a bit like, if we lose this, I didn't make fifty quid. <laughs> and England are out of the <laughs> tournament, so that would be a bit shit, yeah. to be honest. So, I'm yeah. really pleased that we're through. I am really pleased that we're through. Uh, but yeah, Nigeria did very well. They like they were great. defensive and like very strong looking women. <laughs> very strong looking women. They were really good. So I, was, I don't know. It is kind of hard to take the joy in a situation when you know you're outplayed. But, you know, fuck it. <laughs> I'll take it. Now, Mick, I'd like to talk to you about privilege for a minute, if I may. Okay. I know it's something we talk about quite a lot on this podcast and often in relation to men because no one fails upwards like a white male football manager or indeed a Tory minister. But on this occasion, that former Tory minister is in fact former Tory prime minister Liz Truss, if you remember her. Yes. Yeah, you probably do. She's about yay high, knocked around for 49 days in office and completely tanked the economy in that very short period of time, for which we are all still paying the ever-increasing price. Now, Mick, if I were her, I would simply never show my face in public again. But, you know, this is Toryville, so she's not gone quietly. You know, I said only moments earlier that there was no situation in which I would stamp on a person. <laughs> You're taking it back, aren't you? You're taking it back. You didn't You're put retracting. that bet on, did you? You didn't put that bet on. <laughs> as well as having the temerity to stick her head above the parapet to explain where it all went wrong for her, not her fault, by the way, as well as taking home a tidy 25% severance payment of £19,000, as well as an entitlement to a lifelong... £115,000 a year public duties costs allowance. Former Prime Ministers, I know, former Prime Ministers are also entitled to award honours as part of their resignation list. 
Now, obviously, you'll know about this because Boris Johnson has just been allowed to install two children into the House of Lords. <laughs> Are they his children? <laughs> Who knows? 30-year-old Ross Kempsell, the former political editor of Murdoch-owned Talk TV, and Charlotte Owen, who is believed to be in her late 20s and provided maternity cover in Johnson's office for a time. To be fair, I can see why she gets a look in. <laughs> just to reflect on that for a moment, it is called a resignation list. Uh-huh. Yeah, so usually when a PM resigns from their job, it's because they were absolutely fucking shit at it. Yeah, they never sort of go, do you know what? I've had a good run. I've changed the country for a better. I'm going to wander off and let someone else have a go. No, it's it's usually because they have to, which does rather raise the question, why do we let these incompetent twats land their mates in positions of forever power as unelected politicians? Mm. Shrugs, eh? In Johnson's case, he actually left because he was found to have misled Parliament, which would have resulted in a suspension, which would have resulted in a by-election, which actually could have seen him effectively fired by his constituents. Still, why not give him the opportunity to continue to have political influence forever? Oh, it's so depressing. Back to Truss and her catastrophic 49 days in office. She packed a lot in. She certainly packed a lot into her fucking honours list. She's nominated (laughs) a whopping 14 people for honours, which amounts to one every four days for the time she spent in office. How are 14 people still talking to her? Seriously? They all work for GB News. No, uh, the the list was, the paper says, initially longer, but at least two of the nominees actually declined to take the honours out of embarrassment. Hmm. Interesting. I mean... (laughs) You talk about humiliation, but fucking hell. It's nice to see someone has some integrity. The system, it is broken. Yeah, I I appreciate where they're coming from. Because if Liz Truss is bigging you up, you're going to have to look at your life, right? And be like, what have I done wrong? The Times article said that one of them, this is a quote, said it would be humiliating. (laughs) And the other one said they felt they simply didn't deserve it. More of that, please. Yes, please. More yeah. of that, please. Uh, let's stick with the Tories because fuck knows we've had very little choice in the matter for what seems like 127 years. <laughs> it's been covered a couple of times in this section and, you know, other news outlets, although with various, this is fucking awful or what a smashing plan slants. But let's talk the Rwanda plan. Home Secretary Suella Braverman dreamed a dream when she was off her tits on malevolence, and that dream (laughs) was to send people seeking asylum in the UK straight to Rwanda. She's been heartily backed by Mr Sandman, a.k.a. Rishi Sunak. Well, he certainly sends me to sleep. But the Court of Appeal said, No, you evil wankbladders, not on our watch. This breaches human (laughs) rights law. Ever resilient in the face of empathy, the Tories have come up with a plan B on what to do with the people seeking asylum so desperate for a new, safer life that they've made it to our shores. Ascension Island, that is plan B. Should the government lose its Supreme Court appeal on the Court of Appeals ruling that its Rwanda plan is not legal, Ascension Island, this British overseas territory 4,000 miles away in the South Atlantic, is next chance saloon for Braverman's dream to come true. Wanna guess who first suggested Ascension Island as an option for this very scheme, Jenster? I mean, I've never heard of Ascension Island before. Um, I, I don't know who. Former, but then Home Secretary, Pretty Patel. <laughs> Cut from the same cloth, aren't they? And what despicable cloth that is. Don't make anything with this cloth, Jen. It's awful. Speaking at the time that Pretty Patel suggested Ascension Island for this scheme, 
the then Shadow Home Secretary, Nick Thomas-Simmons, said, This ludicrous idea is inhumane, completely impractical and wildly expensive, so it seems entirely plausible this Tory government came up with it. The plan was also described as implausible by a Home Office source. So uh, what's what's changed? What has changed? Well, that question was put to Home Office Minister Sarah Dines, who told Sky News, well, times change. Great stuff, Sarah. Glad you're working for us. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> In related news, Rishi... What does that mean? <laughs> times change, Jen. Times change. In related news, Rishi Sunak has a fresh... Five Things I'm Doing to Stop the Boats video, and it's another stick in the eye to human kindness, but also to anyone with even the most basic knowledge on how to make and edit filmed footage. (laughs) It has, I shit you not, a shake effect every time he says a new number. It's outrageous. Oh, wow. Please watch it and then comment underneath. Sunak has, as ever, all the charisma of slug slime on genitals. And if you're wondering (laughs) what the five things are, I mean, they are nothing new. New laws that mean you can't stay. Something to do with Albania. More raids. Less hotels for asylum seekers. And I'm just going to wang on about only safe legal routes being, well, safe legal routes. Something, by the way, the UK as a country has pretty much put a stop to, despite them being the very obvious answer to reducing the number of attempted dangerous crossings. Look... I am excited for the next attempt to stop the boats in which the Prime Minister personality vacuum announces he's personally going to stop the building of any more boats ever and also have a bonfire of the dinghies in his massive back garden. I feel it's the only way. Mick, would you like some good news? Oh, yes, please. Now, I know that the Pinkwash Mattel corporate dream film Barbie is not without its problems. And indeed, famously, Barbie herself is not without her problems. Her feet are too small, her boobs are too big. But hey, what woman hasn't been told her body isn't as it should be? Wherever you stand on it, congratulations to Greta Gerwig, who became the first ever woman director to reach the billion-dollar box office mark as a solo director just 17 days after the film's release. I know, taking the weekend's ticket sales into account, the film reached... $1.03 billion in box office takings, according to distributor Warner Brothers. Previously, women directors have enjoyed billion-dollar box office successes, but only as collaborators. Parent Torturer Frozen and its (laughs) sequel, directed by Jennifer Lee alongside Chris Buck, took $1.4 billion at the box office, while Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck's Captain Marvel made more than $1.1 billion. But this is even bigger because, post-pandemic and the rise of home streaming, you'll probably have heard the cinema is in a bit of a pickle. My local cinema is indeed just closed its doors gutted yeah sad times and in fact since the pandemic only five other films have reached this milestone the super mario brothers movie spider-man no way home top gun maverick jurassic world dominion and the avatar sequel so apparently women are marketable after all yes it seems that women do want to watch films about women and other people also want to watch films about women who knew we knew we knew. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where it's not what you know, but who you know that matters. Specifically, what men you know. Because <laughs> you can be a woman at the top of her game, and still people will only be interested in whether you know a man who used to be good at the same game. <laughs> 
Hello Zacherin Musevich, Swedish goalkeeper and total star of the show in Sweden's match against the USA, which saw the current World Cup holders go out on penalties. Musevich was quite rightly named player of the match after a series of spectacular saves that kept the score 0-0 through extra time, and so she was quite rightly mighty irritated when at the press conference that followed, a male journalist didn't ask her about a game or the match in general, but instead asked whether she knew Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Oh! If you can imagine the phrase, what is wrong with you, as a facial expression, you've got an accurate mental image of Musevich's response. In fact, whoever makes emojis should probably make it an emoji. I know I'd find it mad useful. <laughs> anyway, I don't need to tell you how fucking patronising and sexist it is to ask a famous woman footballer who just absolutely smashed it, or, you know, even if she didn't, whether she knows a famous man footballer. Jog on, Bellend. You just wasted one of the three questions Musevich was taking. I was sat two seats along from the journalist who asked the Zlatan question and could not believe what I heard. BBC journalist Emma Smith wrote on X, the platform formerly known as Prince. Sorry, I mean Twitter. <laughs> Utterly disrespectful after an incredible performance and a remarkable match slash results, continued Smith. We only got three questions to Musevic at the press conference. One of them was this bollocks. <laughs> yes, Emma. Oh, yes, wow. well said. That's like basically saying like, oh, you're, you're from Scotland. Do you know... Billy Connolly, like <laughs> everyone in like, Scotland knows Billy Connolly, Jen. That's a terrible ridiculous. example. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what she said. She's like everyone in Sweden knows Zlatan. While she killed him with her eyes, that expression, man, is oh yeah, mwah, beautiful. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by award-winning comedian Janine Haruni. Janine, hello. Hello, hi. Well, listeners, I missed out on seeing Janine in her bra. So as far as I'm concerned, this has already got off to a terrible start. <laughs> I walked into this room not realizing my husband had signed me into the Zoom just in my bra, just strolling around looking for the top to on. Just raise the question. <laughs> how many times has he done that? What are people seeing? I know. I know. You guys don't do reviews of shows, do you? Because no. maybe it was just me fishing for a good review. <laughs> well, five stars. Five stars for what's in my imagination, but I didn't actually see. Well done. So, Janine, it has been four years since your debut Edinburgh Fringe show, Stand wow, Up with Janine Rooney, Please Remain Seated, which earned you a Best Newcomer nomination. You're back this year. Has it been a difficult second album? Um... It's been difficult in that I will be nine months pregnant at the Edinburgh Fringe. So <laughs> my feet are killing me from all the previews I've been doing. Wowzers. But it's been uh, more liberating, I would say, because with my first show, there was so much pressure to break through, be you know, do well, because after my first show, I became a professional comedian. So there's a lot of pressure on the show to go well so that I get good reviews and could, you know, make a living as a comedian. And this time, it, it's just been more fun. It's just been about being silly and loose on stage and having fun with the audience, which is, is fun to do when you're very heavily pregnant, actually, because people are very receptive to you. <laughs> you mentioned fishing for reviews. If you give birth during a fringe show, then I reckon if someone doesn't give you five stars for that, fuck a I mean, at least at least the baby will get a Best Newcomer nomination. We don't know. That's what we're hoping for. The newest newcomer. For yeah. sure. 
So tell us about your new show, Manouche. Is it about delicious flatbread? Oh, wow. You've looked it up. No one else has has looked it up before. I love Lebanese food. It's amazing. It's one of my oh. favorites. Well, Manouche is a nickname that my family have always called me. And I never knew what it meant. I thought it was like some gorgeous Arabic word. And then I asked my dad recently and he was like, yeah, it's like pizza. <laughs> so the show talks a lot about my Arab roots because we did a DNA test and there was some inconclusive evidence about my grandmother and her relationship with her sister and whether or not it was her sister or her daughter uh, that she had at 16. And so uh, the show kind of looks back on her life and whether or not she gave up a child and on my life now being pregnant and my decision to become a mom. I was going to say, because a lot of your material is about family. It's very family-based, the pros and cons of our families. Has that felt more pressing now that you've got a baby pressing? Yeah, definitely. Uh, And also, I talk about my family so much on stage because then it makes my therapy tax deductible. (laughs) So that's been really helpful as well. But you were in our material, so you thought, I better make the family bigger. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've got... I have an exceptionally funny family, I think. they're ju- It's just like full of big characters. And so I figured I'd just make one more. Why not? Why not? <laughs> what made you all decide to do a DNA test? It was just one of those Ancestry.com tests. It was just for fun. We just kind of wanted to link up, see if there were any family members that we didn't know living in another country somewhere. Um, so, yeah, it was quite shocking when it happened. Yeah, we we got sponsored by Ancestry dot com and so we got sort of a free pass to be able to delve into our families now hannah and i are both irish catholic so like basically everyone has the same name it's very confusing you're like everyone's called mary this is really annoying so it gets confusing trying to work out who's who but yeah hannah found a couple of proper shockers in her family tree and one of mine was something that my mum didn't know about her mum so it was really interesting yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely, I think people should do it, but go into it knowing that it can be, especially, I think, with, I say in the show, because my husband is Irish, that um, I was really shocked by the results of the test, you know, that where it seemed like my grandmother had a secret daughter that was raised as her sister. And he was like, I'm Irish. That does not sound shocking. That sounds like <laughs> everyone in my extended family. <laughs> yeah, they've all got a couple of husbands because, you know, people moved around a lot for sure. And then, yeah, 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 yeah. Sisters who are actually daughters. My mom's Irish Catholic and her name is Mary. And I'm the first woman in our family to not be called Mary. Is it a middle name or anything? Have they carried it on at all? No, they were they were going to call me Natasha originally. Because is the Lebanese on your dad's side then? Yeah, 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 yeah. So Janine is, I'm sort of named after my grandmother, so there, so France occupied Lebanon when my grandmother was born. And so my grandparents have French names. So my grandfather's called Michel and my grandmother's called Jeanette. And so I think they named me Janine sort of after my grandmother. That was nice. Yeah. But we've been thinking about names for the baby. So I've become obsessed with names recently. My name, Janine, means gift from God. And my husband's name, Andrew, means a man. <laughs> Keep it simple. I love that. Yeah. Keep it simple. Let's go back to your previous show, Please Remain Seated. Whether people can change was at the heart of that, with a lot of the focus on your very conservative, very Catholic, Republican voting dad. Did you, in your wildest nightmares, think that post-2020, he would have the chance to vote for Donald Trump again? 
I did only because my dad has a flag that says Trump 2024 hanging in his garage. So I knew I knew it was definitely possible. And uh, and here I kind of hope he does. I kind of hope he does run because then I could tour the show in America and it would be quite prescient. <laughs> yeah. Have you done the show in America before? I just did a small I think I did six shows in New York, but it'd be great to go back and do it again because Obviously, doing it over here, people could relate to having conservative parents. But in America, it's a different thing. It's when your parents vote for Trump, it's very, it's a different feeling. So doing it in the States felt really cathartic because people would come up to me afterwards and say, I had the exact same situation where one or both of my parents voted for Donald Trump. And I just feel like we can't talk about it. We can't talk anymore about politics because it's just sort of hit a different level now. I think you're smashing and I want you to have every success but I don't know that I would let <laughs> Donald Trump be president again to ensure I that. don't want him to win I don't want him to win I just want him to be in the news a bunch well I mean he's never gonna let us down on that score unfortunately yeah maybe Elon will let him back on Twitter who knows I think he wasn't he back on Twitter I think he was Is back it? on Twitter maybe not okay. I might I might have got that wrong um who knows who's on Twitter anymore the algorithms I'm... are fucked <laughs> I'm off Twitter now because it just got so crazy. It's called X anyway. I mean, come on now. What's happening? (laughs) That is a good question. An evergreen question for the state of the world. On that theme, also in Please Remain Seated, you talked about your time as a young Republican. I mean, obviously, with your dad voting the way he did, it's kind of probably going to happen. But attending anti-abortion rallies, now Roe v. Wade is, is gone. How are you feeling about America and women's rights? Because that's obviously something you feel very passionately about. Yeah, I did. Um, I did the Now Show uh, a couple months ago while I was, I think it was four months pregnant at the time, and I did it defending uh, a piece defending women's right to abortion as a pregnant woman because pregnancy is so scary and difficult and hard, and obviously we should not be sentencing women to nine months of pregnancy just. I mean, just because some of these laws in America are awful. I mean, something was just passed in Florida that said women are not able to access an abortion after the fetus is older than six weeks. And it's like most women don't find out they're pregnant earliest at four weeks. So that gives women two weeks to decide. You have longer to decide if you want to return a blouse to Zara than you do to decide what you want the rest of your life to look like. No, it's obviously been heartbreaking seeing all that happen in the States. Yeah. And but as a teenager, especially going to a Catholic school, growing up in a very conservative part of New York, I think 80 percent of Staten Island, where I'm from, are Republican registered. I think I was just fully brainwashed into thinking that abortion was wrong. And as I got older, I saw, oh, we're not considering the rights of women here at all. And obviously you live over in the UK now, but When you go back to Staten Island, when you talk to your parents, do you think there is a shift from 2016 and 2020? Do you think Staten Island will be another 80% Republican when it comes time to vote and it's potentially convicted sexual abuser Donald Trump again? I don't know. Actually, I do think it is slowly shifting. I I think when Biden ran, because I think the younger generation have different views than their parents and have stayed in Staten Island, you know, have bought houses there and have their own family there, but they have more liberal views. So I do think it is slowly changing. 
And I think most of Staten Island are, are people who were born in Brooklyn in the 50s and 60s, moved to Staten Island and have now retired in New Jersey. So I think there's a lot of people leaving that had those sort of Republican views. I think I think they're all going to Jersey now. My parents have left now. They're in uh, North Carolina, okay, which is a swing state. So that that terrifies me. <laughs> oh, listeners, <laughs> I wish you could have seen Janine's eyes there. They were genuinely terrified. So you're heading up to the Edinburgh Fringe, chaos on earth, nine months pregnant. What are you most and least excited about this fringe? I am uh, most excited about sitting down. I would say, <laughs> yeah, at any point, if I can be sitting down, it would be great. I think I'm just excited. It feels like we're officially back post-COVID. Uh-huh. I did the Fringe last year, but I just did 20 minutes. I split a bill with a very funny comedian called Huge Davies. So we just did 25 minutes each on the free Fringe, which was wonderful. But to be back with a full-blown show and to see how audiences receive it is very exciting. And what are you least looking forward to? I I hope I don't give birth in Edinburgh because, I mean, we're bringing up some stuff for the in case the baby's born. And I'm registering for a hospital in Edinburgh. So I, I hope the baby stays inside until I can get down to my own house where we have everything. We have a nursery set up and everything. Okay, I can't I can't ask you. Talk me through the decision to do the Edinburgh Fringe whilst this pregnant, the most pregnant. Yeah, I know. Um well, so we the, the show touches on this as well. We had a miscarriage last year. Oh, I'm so sorry. And that's okay. I I think it's important that women talk about it because Absolutely. it happened. I mean, I felt so much shame and I felt so alone when it happened. And then when I started telling people what happened, the amount of women who said that they'd been through the exact same thing was astounding. So I touch on that in the show a bit. So we have this miscarriage. And when I got pregnant again, I think after a miscarriage, you sort of think you're going to have another miscarriage. And I thought, I'm not going to pause my life. You know, if I'm pregnant at the fringe, I'll figure it out. But chances are I won't be. But now I will be nine months pregnant at the Fringe. So if there are any midwives listening, please do buy a ticket. Contact my producer. Maybe he'll give you a discount. I don't know. Buy a ticket. Good to know. But every single day. (laughs) Yeah, it's good to know I'm not too far away from someone who can deliver a baby on short notice. Incredible scenes. So Manish is at Pleasance Courtyard at 6.20pm until August the 25th. I was going to ask, are you taking it on tour afterwards? But you are going to be quite busy. I am taking it on tour. (laughs) You're going to have a baby. (laughs) I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to take the baby on tour, I think. Luckily for me, my husband is a very funny comedian. And I think if I can persuade him, he'll uh, open for me. This way we can take the baby. We'll be like a little family band going on tour. Me, him and the baby. That's adorable. I love that. Where can people follow you to keep up to date with, you know, when the baby's out and when you're going to be on tour? (laughs) Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Janine Haroni, J-A-N-I-N-E-H-A-R-O-U-N-I. I can barely spell it. So there you go. Or uh, if you are, I don't know, under the age of 16, you can follow me on TikTok at Janine Haroni Comedy. <laughs> I got a comment on TikTok the other day where someone just wrote, ha ha, you're so like my mom. And I was like, how old are you? And I looked and they were 11. Oh. And I was like, yeah, I guess I could be your mom. <laughs> I hope you're doing the dance routines. That's a big thing on TikTok, isn't it? I've never done I've never I've never done a dance routine on TikTok. 
maybe if the baby decides it wants to stay in a bit longer, that is something you can try. You know, pineapple, yeah, know. curries, dance routines on TikTok. I think they're the, the things that get a baby out. Yeah, yeah. They say a lot of movement helps to speed things up. So I will be walking very slowly at the Edinburgh Fringe trying to keep this baby inside. <laughs> There's a lot of hills. Everyone walks very slowly at the Edinburgh Fringe. Janine, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Georgina Camilleri, director of New Sky documentary Right to Fight. Hi, Georgina, how are you doing? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm really excited about this documentary. Anyone who listens to the podcast will know that I love my sports and also that I love my boxing. So, Georgina, can you tell me a little bit about the documentary? Yeah, it's a feature documentary following the lives of pioneer boxers in the US. And the reason why they're pioneers is because they wanted to box, but they found out that there was a rule across the US, all of the states, that forbade women boxers from becoming professional boxers. So the whole story is about how they overturn this rule and become professional boxers. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what it was like for women at that time. Obviously, they can't obtain professional licences, but they are fighting anyway. So they're doing it in, in a variety of different ways. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. So the 1970s was an amazing period for boxing. It was almost like the golden era for men's boxing. You, know, you had Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, you had all the great iconic names. But for women... It wasn't quite like that. It, it was almost non-existent, as one of the contributors talks about in the film. The idea of women's boxing was really limited to things like apartment boxing, which is basically this weird underworld of women being hired to beat up men in a sort of boxing setup for money. Um, so it's obviously some kind of BDSM set right, up. Okay, yeah. I was going to um, say, is there some sort of like slightly so it's not strange? Really, yeah, yeah. It's not really a sport. It's more of a kink. On the other side of that scale, you had women who enjoyed street fighting. So you know, it might be that after school they agreed with another female student. You know, I'll meet you at the playground and you know, let's fight. And so it was all very kind of underground not legitimate and not really a sport. Women did do something called an exhibition, which is basically like a sparring bout, but it doesn't get logged and no one's paid. It's just to kind of showcase um, the skill. And that was about it. So it was very, very limited. So basically they can do it, but they can't get paid to do it. Exactly. So the idea of professional boxing is that you get paid. You get a license, which gives you the sort of legitimacy to take part in professional boxing way where you then get paid for it. So you focus on US athletes, but the picture was kind of similar here. I wonder why it was specifically that you wanted to focus on the US? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it was purely coincidental. My job at the time, three, four years ago, was to come up with ideas for a sports series for another channel. And as part of that, I sort of stumbled across this amazing archive. It was a 1978 documentary about Cat Davis, who's a contributor in the film. 
And it was all about her journey to trying to overturn this law that I mentioned earlier. Through that documentary and through her story, I just decided to look more into the US side of it. And obviously the UK, in a way, came much later with Jane Couch. So the, the timelines didn't quite coincide. Otherwise, I would have done something more international. It would have been huge. So I just decided to focus on mainly the US and, and that bit, that slice of history over there. So I wanted to ask you about Kat Davis, so one of the women who contributes to it. And she's the first woman to get the professional license, right? So Kat Davis is one of three women to get awarded the New York license. And there is a promise of fighting at Madison Square Garden. But in the end, it falls through. It doesn't actually uh, materialise. So her story is quite interesting. And it reminded me of the story of another boxer who I met in the US. She's kind of credited as one of the women who popularises women's boxing in the US. She's called Christy Salters Martin. She's super famous. Christy Martin is, in a way, she was seen as the pioneer. Yeah. And there's an untold documentary on Netflix that actually looks at her story. But everyone, including myself, thought that's where it all began with Christy Martin, because I think it was Don King mm -hmm. that was the one that gives her the opportunity yes. to become yeah. a professional boxer. Yeah. But there's a movement before Christy Martin that we didn't know about. This whole movement of women across the US who were fighting to overturn the law that says they couldn't fight professionally. Mm. So they are the predecessors of Christy Martin. So even though Christy Martin perhaps popularized the sport and, and brought it to a new mainstream level, it's worth looking back at, you know, at these women that actually made it possible for her to to even consider that career. Kat Davis's story reminded me a bit of hers. Kat is managed by a guy who is sort of pressuring her to, to marry him, to be in a relationship with her. I wondered if you thought that was quite widespread amongst women, boxers or maybe in sport in general at that kind of time. You do get these relationships between the talent and the coach or manager. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it because if someone is pouring all of their time into their passion and all they see is this one coach or manager who seems to be very interested in their ambitions and dreams, and it, it makes sense that there might be a space for a romantic relationship there. However, at the same time, the two examples you've just given are women that felt perhaps uncomfortable with those relationships and were discovering something about themselves. But Boxing is a very macho sport, sort of the bastion of masculinity. And so the idea that back then, it's no longer true now, but the idea that there were lesbians or you know, gay women who wanted to box was very controversial and seen as a way of discrediting the sport. So with Kat, I don't know about Christy, but with Kat, certainly she really needed to hide that. And I don't know if it was widespread. I mean, I'm sure people had relationships with their coaches because of the reasons I, I mentioned earlier about, you know, you've got a, a small circle of people around you, like who you're going to fall in love with. But I don't know. I think I'm sure there were different variations of relationships to Kat and Christy. You know, I'm sure some people truly found love. But it is an interesting parallel you made there, yeah. I wondered what kind of attitudes 
these women were coming up against at the time. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who I th- think in, in many ways is quite a progressive man, but he said to me, I don't want to see women punching each other in the face. I don't like to see it. And I'm like, but you do like boxing. So if it's okay for guys, why is it not okay for women? So I wondered if you think that those attitudes are still quite widespread and if if we have come along much. What I've noticed is that we go through waves. And right now we're going through a wave that is quite polarizing. On the one hand, you have women that really want to box. And you see a lot of women getting into this. You see football teams made up of women. The Lionesses are doing great right now. On the other hand, you know, we're hearing stories about Andrew Tate, you know, saying women like are basically sex objects. So I think we're living in a very polarized era where, yes, you do still have men that feel that way about women and boxing, but you also have men that don't. And so one thing I really wanted to make clear in the film is that it's not a case of men against women. It's to do with people's values. Hmm. In the film, for example, you see Lady Tiger's dad introduce her to boxing and encourage her to go out and find a gym to train. And, you know, that's a man from the previous generation that's kind of getting her to do that. And then later on in the film, you have a coach. Ernestine is a boxer and she has a coach who talks about the fight. He obviously took her under his wing to train her in boxing. So there are men back then that were progressive and there are men today that are regressive. And it just, it, it really depends where we're at as, as a whole in society. And I think that comes in waves. And I think you get a mix of men and women being both progressive and regressive. I wanted to ask you just uh, sort of continue that theme of like modern boxing about influence of boxing for the uninitiated it's like there's these kind of boxing promoters at the moment they promote things between youtube influencers and and various things and and there was a big hoo-ha the other week about a woman called daniela hemsley who won her king pim fight and she basically flashed her boobs at the cameras and the crowds there was a lot of chat about this and various people including Clarissa Shields who's obviously a a big name in in boxing and uh, Eddie Hearn who is a you know well-known boxing promoter promoter, have all sort of come out and said that this is you know this is actually really detrimental to the sport it's really setting women's boxing back I wondered if you had Mm. any thoughts on it having looked at those kind of earlier days of of boxing and Mm. Yeah, when I saw that, I definitely felt like it was an echo of that kind of apartment boxing vibe. And also in the 80s, there were similar things like playboy boxing, I think. I think you always have those offshoots of a sport. And it yes, it it's a two-pronged thing. On one hand, it does take away from the sport because there are athletes that train that take themselves seriously and want people to take them seriously on the other hand i understand that sport is always looking for ways to bring money in and if they need to diversify that stream of income into the world of social media then that also makes sense it's just that it does muddy the waters a little bit in terms of what is the sport and for most people that don't know about boxing boxing is quite complicated in terms of all the ranks, all the belts. And so to bring this other element to it further complicates it. So I think you're 
just need to educate the public to understand this is not the same as, you know, Clarissa Shields fighting. And and I guess in addition to that, it's thinking about those audiences. What if, you know, there are young teenage girls watching that? What message are you sending out if they want to be inspired to be athletes? It's quite confusing. So away from the sexualization of it, I think it just further confuses the sport. So I don't want to completely veto it because I feel like it's always going to be there. But I think there needs to be a clarification that it's not the same as Clarissa Shields, for example, fighting Savannah Marshall. Because you've mentioned the lionesses there, for example, who obviously they're playing in the World Cup at the moment. And do you, do you think you have victories in, in sport, in, in one sport, and then that has a kind of like knock-on effect for all of women's sport? Absolutely. I mean, just seeing the Lionesses win and lift up the trophy, that feeling, that kind of feeling of I'm a sports person and I've just won, you know, it's, it's so contagious that it makes any woman, you know, want to try that out, want to have their own team and try it out, whatever that sport may be. I actually, you know, do tag rugby. I know that's really random, but watching the Lionesses win made me you know, kind of reignited this this fuel and passion to do more sport because, you know, it's just a contagious feeling of of being involved in sport in that way. Yeah. So I think definitely. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about what drew you to this subject in the first place. You know, you said before that you were working on this other series at the time. You directed an episode of the Netflix documentary series Bad Sport and you sort of developed half the series as well. Is sport something that you're particularly interested in? I'm glad you noticed. (laughs) (laughs) I am, yeah, I love it so much. Honestly, I I find that it's an escape sometimes. There, there are so many things that come with sport. And by that, I mean, you know, if I'm doing a team sport, it really makes me feel that I belong to a group or that I'm sharing something with others. If it's a solo sport, it gives me a moment to myself where I can really just be present in the moment. So sometimes I go surfing. I'm not very good, by the way. But, you know, just sitting on the board and just staring at the waves to check, is is that a good wave? Is that not a good wave? And you have to be in the present. You have to be really aware of your surroundings and not let thoughts or other things sort of hijack your mind. You can't ruminate on something that happened 10 years ago. You really have to be present in the moment. And that's why I love sports so much for that. When I think about some of the best documentaries I've seen in recent years. A lot of them are actually about sport, but I mean, I am someone who is interested in what sport tells us about society. So I guess I would be drawn to those documentaries. But I do think like some of the really, really good ones I've seen, like the Storyville, OJ Simpson documentaries, is just the best documentary, I think, that has ever been, apart from obviously yours, Georgina, or The Last Dance on Netflix about the Chicago Bulls is like absolutely fascinating but also I do know it's not just me and it's not just because I have this particular interest in sport I know a lot of other people that find these documentaries really fascinating I wondered if you had any thoughts on what it is about sports documentaries that kind of capture people's imagination it's funny because even though right to fight is about women's boxing in a way isn't Hmm. so boxing is the world but within that world we're following personal stories. And so I think the reason why sports documentaries are so good is because sport naturally gives you 
a structure or a formula that you can always come back to whilst exploring people's personal stories. So, you know, with Free Solo, it's all about him making this epic climb. But really, we're just trying to understand what kind of mind this person has to want to do that, you know, and, and the relationships that he has, you know, with his girlfriend, with his team that are there to support him, but also are facilitating a potential tragedy. So that I think that's that's why sports documentaries are so great. They just give you that structure or format that you can then go, okay, I've got this as my as my sort of go-to comeback structure, but it allows me, it frees me up to just really discover more about this person on a deeper level. Georgina, do you know what, what your next project is? What are you working on at the moment? Can you tell us anything? I really want to do more sports documentaries. I've got a wish list. You know, I really want to see a sort of upstock about current women's boxing. I feel like women's boxing today is booming. And I'd love to, to see a documentary explore the different characters, both in the US and the UK, all leading up to various fights. And just understanding that world, I think that would be amazing. I don't know. If anyone has an idea, you know, they should reach out to me. <laughs> I would absolutely watch that documentary about boxing. So if anyone does want to get in touch with you, Georgina, with some brilliant ideas or not brilliant ideas, as as the case may be, <laughs> how can they do that? Can you tell us where we can find you on social media to follow what you're up to next? My handle is at georgina.camilleri. Also, can you tell the listeners, please, where we can watch the documentary? So I think now it's on Now TV platform. And I think you'll be there until mid-August. Hopefully you'll come back, but I don't know. That's a, that's a sky question. Georgina, thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me. Thank you so much. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film that we watched this week has quite incorrectly led to a lot of this. Shut down in a blaze of glory <laughs> take me now someone make me stop but know the truth <laughs> no, <laughs> i'm going. going down in a blaze of glory lord i never drew first but i drew first blood i'm no one son call me <laughs> this week we watched 1988 young guns which may or may not be the brat pack's only period piece and may or may not be the only one of their films to spawn a sequel that actually stars most of the same people. I say may or may not, because there's some debate as to what an official Brat Pack film is. So, if you know different, feel free to correct me. I am no expert in this genre. And, just to be clear, Mickey, we're watching Young Guns, which is not to be confused with Young Guns 2, which is the one with all the Bon Jovi, <laughs> or Young Guns, having some fun, Crazy ladies, keep them on the run. Although there is some death by matrimony in this. <laughs> so, lads, have you seen this before? How many times have you seen it? Etc. Etc. We'll start with you, Mickey. Brat Pack on horseback. Yes, I have seen it before. I think only a couple of times, though, which felt weird to me as I was watching it. I felt like I should have watched it more as a younger woman. <laughs> so, watched it as a teenager yes. first yeah, time, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. Jen? Big Fat Zero for me. I think I might have watched uh, Blaze of Glory, but um, n never this one. Interesting. 
So I went to the pub with my best mate on Saturday night and we talked about Young Guns for about an hour and a half, obviously, because we are both the same age and exactly the right age to have watched this at shitload of times. Yeah, I saw it when I was 14 and watched it a lot, a lot. Had it on video. But interestingly, grew out of it so quickly that I have only seen Young Guns 2 once and never bothered seeing it again. I don't think I've seen Young Guns 2. I've just got the soundtrack forever in my head. I couldn't have quoted a line from it apart from Saddle Up Regulators, but the minute I was watching it, I knew exactly what was coming next at every single moment. Anyway... Set during the Lincoln Wars in 1870s New Mexico, it's based on a true story, but more, oh so much more, on that later. It's directed by Christopher Kane, who also made the fourth instalment of the Karate Kids film, which I didn't even know existed, but apparently starred a young Hilary Swank. Oh, there's like eight instalments now, aren't there? There's loads of them. Oh, it made a, it made a comeback. I think it was a TV mm. series as well. The Karate yeah, it was Cobra Kai. I think was there the TV series. Young Guns cost eleven million dollars to make, which is a reasonable investment given the 1980s was a period when no one. But no one was investing money in Westerns. No. <laughs> it bought in £56 million at the box office. And I'll tell you who that didn't surprise. John Bon Jovi. <laughs> According to Kiefer Sutherland, the Bon Jovi frontman, who was a friend of Emilio Estevez, was often hanging around on set and actually appears in the final shootout scene along with Tom Cruise. John Bon Jovi was so convinced that Young Guns would spawn a sequel, he wrote Blaze of Glory during one visit to the set. He wrote that in just one visit. It's such a good song. I'm surprised it didn't take him longer. I'm surprised he didn't say, how about I save everyone the sequel and we just use it in this film you're making now. Yeah, Yeah, that would have been better. Perhaps they'd already contracted someone. Yeah. (laughs) Reviews, however, were mixed, with critics' ratings leading to a score of 42% on Rotten Tomatoes, but Cinescore, which is audience ratings, gave it an A-. Let's have a little look at the plot. As mentioned, we're in Wild West, New Mexico, where good old John Tunstall, played by Terence Stamp, is looking after a bunch of lads on his cattle ranch. When he's killed by men working for his main competitor, Murphy, that's Jack Palance, His regulators decide to take revenge. Billy the Kid, played by Emilio Estevez, wants to be the swinging dick, but they already have one of those, conveniently called Dick, (laughs) played by Charlie Sheen. They're joined by Chavez E. Chavez, that's Lou Diamond Phillips, Dirty Steve, that's Dermot Mulroney, Charlie, who's played by Casey Samasgo, and Doc, played by, and I know Jen's not going to like me saying this, but 14-year-old me is going to overrule her, an absolutely beautiful Kiefer Sutherland. Agreed. I'm on board. I'm on board. Jen has covered her face with her hands and is vomiting into a bowl. <laughs> what I'm doing with my face right now is not good. Oh, my goodness. He's very handsome in this film. He looks like a potato. Fully dreamy, yeah. Who doesn't love potatoes? <sighs> I don't want to fuck a Mick, that's for sure. Hey, Jen, you keep your kinks to yourself. If me and Hannah want to get off with a potato, we will. While looking at a picture of Kiefer Sutherland in Young Guns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chavez, a man after my own heart, decides things might be better if they were all off their head on drugs. <laughs> but the peyote, and indeed their luck, doesn't last. Dick is killed, so they inexplicably let the other Dick run the show. And it all culminates in a shootout at the house of their friend Alex, 
played by a with hair Terry O'Quinn. Some die, some don't, and some ride off into a future that is not only historically inaccurate, but altered by events that actually happen in the sequel. I'm going to start with you, Jen. A bit surprised you haven't seen it before, given you've got brothers, and this is a film about the lads. 88 is too early, though, really. They would have been too young to be watching something as violent as this, I think. The next one is sort of bang on. Is it about 92, the next one? I think it was 1990, yeah. Really? Because I remember that song being in the charts and everything. That might be why I know about that film, because the song was in the charts and I was quite into the charts at that time in my life. So, yeah, I think think this is probably a little bit too early for them to have enjoyed it. What I will say is, as I was watching it yesterday, I was a bit like, hmm... Hang on a minute, what's all this regulator stuff about? So I looked it up. The hip-hop classic, the seminal classic, Regulate by Warren G, did indeed take inspiration from this film. So, there you go. From from the film, not the history. <laughs> from the film. Yeah. Okay, fair dues. Should we talk about the history? Because actually, in its defence, Young Guns has been called one of the more accurate <laughs> films about this subject matter, which... To be honest, doesn't say much about the other ones <laughs> because it is also wildly historically inaccurate. I want to start with something really positive about it, though. I think what it, one of the things it does really well is that in casting a load of young men in it, it's one of the few Westerns I could think where actually the characters are played by actors who are approximately the same age. Terence Stamp's a, a, an exception to this because Terence Stamp who we can also stop and talk about just how beautiful he was when he was younger and still is in this film. John Tunstall was actually only in his 20s. But everybody else is around around the same age. And even stuff that I really, really love normally gets this wrong, like Deadwood, for example. While Bill Hickok died in his late 30s and is played by Keith Carradine, who's in his early 50s. You know, the assassination of Jesse James. Jesse James died at 33 and is played by Brad Pitt, who's in his 40s when he makes it i think it's because they feel like it brings more gravity. i was gonna by, say by like it gives weight to man. the character almost yeah but you're totally right because they were a bunch of very young men like billy the mm. kid died at 21 22 and yeah. so emilio estefez who i think is excellent in this role plays him kind of as silly the kid he is just like a fun-loving psychopath which yeah. is quite accurate to how billy the kid was and why he was so fucking trigger happy. Because he was really young and a bit, you know, hadn't had life lessons and stuff. And obviously people in the Wild West died young. So it does make more sense to have them played by young actors. Sort of the Lost Boys, right? Yeah. Rather than older actors. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I feel like it brings more gravitas when we have sort of gnarly looking cowboys. But they would not have been at all. But yes, he does play fast and loose with the facts. But it's not bad. It's not bad at getting it right, which seems ridiculous given how silly this film is. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, just the ending. I mean, Charlie didn't die. That shootout went on for five days. I know I can understand why you might compress it to a day <laughs> in this. But, but Charlie didn't die. Charlie was also shot by Pat Garrett a couple of years later. Doc was already married. His China doll... I'm putting that in quotes just to be clear. She is a a made-up character. He was already married, although it is true that he did have a lot of kids and go straight. Although he also appears in Young Guns too. 
So that sort of cancels that. And bit dies out. in Young Guns too when he he didn't. <laughs> yeah, and Chavez, he Chavez did not go straight. I did read something interesting. He where he later challenged Bob Ford, who is the guy that killed Jesse James, to a gunfight, and Bob Ford apparently left town and ran away scared. So, yeah, it's wildly, wildly historically inaccurate in parts, but obviously slightly more accurate than other parts. Talking about Pat Garrett, he was played by Patrick Wayne in this. Anybody want to guess who his dad was? Bruce Wayne. John Wayne. Bruce Wayne. John Sorry, Wayne. John Wayne is what I meant. Bruce Wayne's a <laughs> yeah. fictional Batman. character from Batman. Batman. <laughs> well done, Jen. Jen, Sorry. did you spot Jack Nicholson As- in this? <laughs> Another thing that works quite well about this is they're mostly playing against type, which was a bit more luck than judgment. Like, for example, Charlie Sheen, who was very late on board with this, is playing the sensible guy, which is very much against type. Kiefer Sutherland is usually the psychopath, and here he's playing the the gentle romantic soul slash stalker. Yes, uh, romantic uh, in inverted commas there, I think. And Estevez is attempting, I think, because he's usually the good guy, is attempting to, or one of the less bad guys, he's attempting to do what his dad did in Badlands and doesn't actually do it as well. I think he's very good, though. I love his little sort of maniacal giggle after he kills someone. I don't know why, it just really tickles me and sort of captures that Billy the Kid essence. Charlie Sheen is an interesting one. It's interesting to see the Sheen brothers, the Estevez brothers, on screen together. Kind of in an almost equally weighted role, right? They make cameos in each other's films. But yeah, it's interesting to see them together, on the same side, but pitted against each other for Top Dog. I mean, how much brotherly stuff was going on there? Yeah, interesting. Who was the more famous? Charlie Sheen's really young in this film. Like 20, 21, something like that. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, Jen, what did you say? Who was the more famous at the time? Because I think Charlie Sheen is not always for the right reasons, admittedly, but I think Charlie Sheen did become the more famous one, didn't he? Well, it's famous and infamous, isn't it? Yeah. No, <laughs> but I think difference. he was in more stuff as well, like, as time went on. And then obviously, like, yeah, you know, there were, as you say, other reasons. Who who was the more famous at the time, I wonder? At the time, Emilio Westerfels yeah, was yeah. definitely the more famous, I would say. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Clearly, your mum didn't make you watch Stakeout over and over again because she fancied Richard <laughs> Dreyfus. Just saying. I think I have seen Stakeout, you know. With my mum. Incredible. Not with your mum. That would be weird. But <laughs> There is a lot of gunfighting. It's a very loud film, Hannah. I <laughs> uh, don't. I've seen Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer nearly burst my eardrums and, and I... I can't hear properly. <laughs> I fully expected to turn around and see everybody else just bleeding out of their ears with the volume of it. I'm guessing it wasn't your sort of film in that sense, Jen. No, there was an awful lot of uh, of gun shenanigans and there was quite a lot of bits. I was a bit like, oh, that's not very nice. Um, there was quite a lot of blood splattered across people's faces after people get shot in the head and shit like that. So yeah, no, not really my kind of film, to be fair. Given how violent it is, I don't think it's very graphic. It, it was graphic enough for me. Like there were <laughs> there were quite a lot of people's heads getting blown in. Jack Palance at the end when he gets shot right in the middle of the head. Ah, oh. when he reaps the whirlwind. When he reaps the whirlwind, now it's over. Is it Young Guns Two? Is it? <laughs> as well as not really enjoying the the garden stuff because I found it like quite violent. I also found it unbelievably dull. Really? 
unbelievably dull. I was just like, oh, they're shooting things again. Okay. I've got to say, you know, in the end, and I, I appreciate, Hannah, that they did, that Christopher Kane chose to compress a five-day gunfight shootout to one day, but then why did he put it in slow motion? And I was like, there's no yeah. need for slow motion at this point. I mean, the gunfight makes absolutely no sense. They set fire to the house, get them out, and then they all managed to escape, or mostly managed to escape. And then Alex comes out, and at that point, they remember they've got a Gatling gun, and just, yeah. like, fire at him. Why, why didn't they shoot it at them? It doesn't make any logical sense. Yeah, no. He goes out in a blaze of glory, doesn't he, I guess? Well, yeah. It's not that glorious, to be honest with you. When it, they used the slow motion, and I was like, oh, you don't use slow motion on a film that's already two and a bit hours long. And I was surprised to find that it's not. So I guess it did feel slower than it actually is. But I, I was mm. still having quite a nice time, so it was fine. I was fine with that. I was like, you know, I don't mind if you want to linger on Kiefer's face for a bit. That's fine with me. Oh, Jen, she's just got a face of stone there. <laughs> Absolute stone. Women, right? I think one of the most disappointing things about this film is that they throw out in the last 30 seconds that Susan McSween turned out to be almost as famous and interesting as anyone else in it. And <laughs> they've barely more. given her any screen time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Come on. If somebody's making a Western again now, why hasn't her life been made into a Western? Because that's super interesting. This woman that you see for, ooh, 30 seconds in total during yeah. the film, she actually did what the men failed to do really successfully. Yeah. Well done, her. Yeah. <laughs> and then, obviously, a character that's made up that needs rescuing. Although I, I do think the point of, of her possibly is to show that women were just commodities. I don't know if that's the point, but it doesn't show that. Particularly women of like a minority. She'd been taken because a shirt got ruined. But that scene with her and Doc is so... It's uncomfortable in the kind of romantic comedy stuff that we've been talking about recently, like what is romantic, obsession and stalking. No, you're not entitled to someone just because you've decided you've fallen in love with them. Again, in 30 seconds, like, come on, guys, give yourself a little bit of time to get to know someone. But also, he breaks into her room and then immediately just puts his... It's like, that would be terrifying. And she goes from saying, you're going to rape me and then cut me into little pieces to saying, but I do think about you all the time and I have kept those flowers you've given me. Whoa. What's going on there? I tell you what's going on there. A man has written it. That's what that's what went on there. Absolutely. What yeah. about the wedding? I was very confused by the wedding. Did they just meet? Were they yeah, betrothed? Like what the fuck happened there? It was just like he's getting married and you're like, To who? Well, okay, that doesn't make any sense in this film. In real life it does make sense okay. because she was actually as I said, Doc was married and he was married to a Mexican woman and she was the sister. Right. Oh. So in real life, it does make sense. But in the in the context of this film, it makes no sense at all. But also, it follows so fast on hot on the heels of Charlie being held by a prostitute. And then he's getting married. Yeah. What? Yeah. Hannah, what? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't like Westerns. I, I don't prefer to understand them. <laughs> Um, or understand the thinking behind a lot of them might be closer to it. But yeah, he doesn't even die at the end of this. But the point is that they're trying to say, oh, look, Charlie's found, finally yeah. found someone and he's dead. Even Yeah, I, I was like, as soon as they were, he was like, oh, I'm going to go with you. Oh, I'm going to come with you. And they're like, oh, 
don't worry about it, mate. You've just been married. It's fine. And he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to come with you. I was a bit like, right. So this is just to introduce unnecessary jeopardy, is it? Well, yeah, and also to demonstrate that what the whole point of the film is supposed to be is that, you know, lads love each other, hang around together. <laughs> lads, 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 lads. Or as they put it, pals. Yeah, pals before... Gals. 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 Nice. Well done, Mickey. Yeah. yeah. I'd be an excellent cowboy. <laughs> yeah. I'd be dead. That's how good I'd be. I was going to ask about uh, whether you had a favourite bit. I might as well start because it's probably the same bit. It's when they're all off their face on peyote. It is actually genuinely really funny. <laughs> Can yeah. anyone else see the giant chicken? <laughs> yeah. I loved that bit. It's just, And it doesn't make any sense. Like, they're in so much trouble. Like, why would they stop and do peyote? It doesn't do them any good. <laughs> they just have quite a nice time, I guess. Well, except that they do manage to pass through the village because they're under the impression that no one can see them. Fun fact: There, you can't see Kiefer Sutherland in that in that scene. His face is entirely covered by a black like piece of fabric uh, because it's not actually him. His kid was born on that day, and uh, he had to leave the set. So that's actually somebody else playing him in that scene. He was. That in is the an interesting world. fact. That is interesting. Anybody got anything else that they would like to add before we get to the crucial question? I think Bon Jovi, John Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi <laughs> is really missing from this because the soundtrack is quite terrible it's quite terrible soft rock yeah. but like not as good as cock rock as well and cock rock seems much more fitting yeah i agree thank you thank you hannah young guns rated or dated i didn't enjoy it very much but i don't think it was particularly dated i enjoyed it a lot and i think it's very dated indeed <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I enjoyed it a lot, and I also think it's dated, and I will probably watch it again, even knowing <laughs> that it's dated. Jen, Hannah, what's coming up? Well, fortunately for you, you chose this one, so it is <laughs> it is uh, going to be 1958, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Standard issue for all women. 